Community.com. Um, had not been in correspondence with them up to this point. And so, uh, you know, the leaders of the church at Rome were likely somewhat reluctant and maybe a bit skeptical uh, toward him. And yet Paul is this authority in the church, right, in the early church, and he needs to speak into their situation. So he'd be trying to lead them toward God's design as a church, um, kind of repairing the broken relationship uh, or the strained relationship between Jewish and and Gentile, non-Jewish believers. In Rome, he would be establishing a better relationship between himself and them despite kind of that apprehension towards him. And not only that, but he would ultimately be appealing to them in hopes that they would make a financial contribution to his ministry. Because he hoped to take the gospel to Spain. And so how would he accomplish all this? Well, he would give them his very best work. A letter that was really unrivaled theologically by anything else ever written. He would give them this religious masterpiece. So he introduces uh, the letter, introduces himself, addresses them in verses 1 through 15, which we talked about that week, uh, last week. And then uh, we get to... Uh, kind of his main thought for the entire letter in what you might call his thesis statement in the next couple of verses. Right now, uh, before we get into that, there was a youth speaker that I once heard uh, a few times actually uh, who talked about the best way to make sure that your message was really clear. And uh, it was at kind of a training conference and he said this, first, tell people what you're going to say. Second, say it. And third, Tell them what you just said. (laughs) Like, that's the way to be clear, right? Tell people what you're going to say, say it, and then tell them what you told them. Right? And and in a way, that's kind of what Paul does here, at least over the next couple of chapters. He starts at the beginning here by telling them, this is what I'm going to say. And and then he's going to talk about that for a bit, and then he's going to come back to it in a way that says, uh, this is what I told you. Um, And so we're going to see that over the next few chapters. Okay, so Romans 1, 16 and 17 is where we're focusing today. Uh, For the first time, Paul says what he's going to say. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. All right, so those two verses, important concept, key idea in this letter, and that's just what we're going to focus in on a bit today. So the message today is really called the key, uh, the righteousness through faith. That's ultimately uh, what we're getting at here. The key is righteousness through faith. And so we're going to work through these couple of verses for a bit. He starts by saying, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, if you remember, one of the, one of the things uh, the Jewish Christian leaders at Rome may have wondered about in regards to Paul is if perhaps he didn't come to Rome so far or address them because he was afraid that maybe his gospel message wouldn't quite hold up against them as learned Jewish scholarly type people. Or maybe he was afraid to go there because of the persecution that they faced. Well, if for some reason they were thinking that, if that was the case, and you know, we really don't know for sure, but it, it certainly looks like he attempted to put any rumors like that to rest here when he writes, I am not 
ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed of the gospel. And of course, the word gospel means good news, right? We kind of learn that pretty early in Sunday school. We talk about that pretty often. But if you think about the gospel in the sense of being good news, if the point of the gospel is to show how a person can be saved and have eternal life, then calling it good news is a little bit of an understatement, isn't it? Right? The truth of Jesus, the gospel, is the greatest, most important, most significant news that anyone could ever come to know. Right? And we've got to put that in perspective. So when we talk about the gospel, it's not just, it's beyond good news. It's the most important thing ever. In his letter to uh, the Corinthian church, uh, first, first Corinthians, he kind of summed up the gospel in a nutshell. It's often referred to as in, in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, right? He's saying this is the priority. This is the most important thing. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared. Right? So Paul gives this summary in this other letter of, of what has occurred. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day and He appeared. And all of this, all of these things that He did were according to the Scriptures. In other words, this was God's plan from the beginning. Right? This was God's plan. Now, of course, there's a lot more to it than that. You can describe the Gospel like that in just a few words, um, like Paul did here, but to understand it fully, to have the most full understanding of the Gospel is going to take a lot more than just a few words. And apparently Paul thought it would take about 15 more chapters. Right? Because that's where Romans goes. And, and, and plus I want to just add, like, it's not just knowing the words or the details or the concept or the events of the Gospel. It's about personally knowing the person of Jesus. Right? That, that the Gospel speaks of. It's about knowing Him. And so Paul says, look, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, like in any way. He says, for it is the power of God for salvation. That's the next line he says. For it is the power of God for salvation. And the word for salvation is a soteria. Uh, I believe we've got this definition up there. Deliverance or salvation. Right? That's the idea here. It comes from the Greek word sozo, which means to rescue or save. It's, a, it's God's rescue, which delivers people out of destruction and into his safety. Okay? Now, I, I know that I've shared this many times before throughout the history of Portico, but I, I feel like we want to be clear and say it again. So often we want to believe that people, humanity, are basically good people who sometimes do some bad things. Right? We tend to look at the positive things in people. We try to believe the best, right? Like, none of us are really that bad, right? 
But Scripture says differently. Right? It says that we are sinful people. And apart from God, there isn't anything good in us. Because of our sinful nature and because of our sinful choices, we all fall short of God's glory and are enemies with Him and are separated from Him by sin. And not only that, we're part of the kingdom of darkness and are headed for death and destruction. Right? Because there is a punishment and wrath that God is going to pour out on sin and unbelief. That's our state of being. That's what Scripture talks about. That's our destiny until or unless we're rescued from that. Right? So unless we are saved, salvation, unless we are saved from it and receive the gift of eternal life, that's what salvation is about. And Paul says the Gospel, the good news about Jesus, is God's means of bringing about salvation to us. Right? It's the power of God for salvation. And then he says, to everyone who believes. And I think the important thing, there's two important words here, everyone and believe. <laughs> right? But the main thing here, it's, it's to everyone who believes. Salvation is not just some automatic thing that happens to everyone. Like the fact that Jesus died for sins, that He was buried, that He rose from the dead, that He appeared, uh, that, that is true. But in order for us to still receive the salvation that is being offered, we have to receive it by faith. We have to believe. We've got to put our faith and trust in Him. The Gospel message has been extended to anyone and to everyone, but is actually bringing salvation to who? For everyone who believes. Okay? And then Paul says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So, he points out that God's chosen people were the ones to whom God revealed His promised Savior. Just because He chose them to reveal the promised Savior through them. They were first. They were first. And they were first to witness most of Jesus' uh, miracles and teachings. They were first to witness His death and the burial of Jesus. They were first to see the resurrected body when He came back to life. They were first to receive the Holy Spirit who was poured out at Pentecost. So the Gospel message came to the Jew first. But after this, this gospel message was taken to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. Right? So although the Jewish people were at the center of God's plan because He chose them, for no other reason but He chose them, the offer of salvation is still for all people. So first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, Paul says. And again, remember, he's trying to bring all believers together under Christ. So he, he mentions them both. Okay, verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So uh, the first thing Paul mentions in this verse is uh, the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. And uh, the, the word for righteousness there is <laughs> dikeosune a mouthful, dikeosune, means righteousness and justice. It's a, it's a judicial verdict of approval. Right? It's used of those who are considered innocent 
in the eyes of the law. That's kind of the framework of that word. Now, here's the thing. When you look at the scope of Scripture and history, there's a big thing that you're going to see throughout it. And I know this is a big sweeping statement I'm I'm about to make here, but but here, here it is. The central dilemma for all of humanity is obtaining righteousness. Right? The central dilemma for all of humanity is, re, is attaining righteousness. Like, how do we get back to a right standing with the God who created us? Because ever since the fall, everything and everyone falls short. Right? Adam and Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the people of Israel who had the law, couldn't live up to that, the judges, the kings, the prophets, everyone in the Old Testament before the time of Jesus, and everyone in the New Testament after Jesus, up until the very last days, look, everyone falls short. Everyone. The central dilemma for all of humanity is obtaining righteousness. Remember the rich young ruler? This is a classic story, a classic thing that happened in the life of Jesus, but the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and his question was, what do I have to do to get eternal life? Right? What do I have to do to get eternal life? He wanted eternal life, and so he needed to know, wanted to know what he had to do that would be considered good enough that would allow him to attain righteousness. And of course, he couldn't do it on his own. But the, the dilemma that he faced is the same dilemma of all humanity. It's still true today, whether people realize it or not. The central dilemma for all of humanity is obtaining righteousness, and specifically, righteousness in the eyes of God. We need righteousness if we want eternal life. We can't get to heaven without being innocent and just. And that brings up some important questions, right? Like, well, what are the standards for righteousness? What does that righteousness look like? Can we possibly meet those standards? If so, how? And if not, what do we do about it? Well, Paul says that this righteousness, the righteousness of God, is revealed. Right? That's the next thing. It's revealed. And the word picture here for being revealed is simply something that's covered up and then someone pulls the cover off. Right? That's the word picture there. It's like God has shown, revealed His righteousness to us. He's revealed it. Um, and I think two particular things about this. First, God has revealed to us the standard of righteousness through the person of Jesus. Right? God has revealed the standard of righteousness through the person of Jesus. He's the standard. He showed us what it is and what it looks like. He showed us what purity and perfection and holiness looked like. He's the visible image of the invisible God, Scripture tells us. You want to know what God is like? Just look at Jesus. That's the righteousness of God. He was fully God. He embodied that righteousness because He was God in the flesh. So the standard of righteousness is Jesus. It's perfection. That's all. That's all. You just need to be perfect like Jesus to get to heaven. Do that and you're good. But of course, none of us can do that. None of us have and none of us can. But fortunately, what he's also revealed 
is the means of attaining righteousness, which is through faith in Jesus. Right? God has revealed the means of attaining righteousness through faith in Jesus. Like, Jesus is how we attain it. Faith in Him, in His work on the cross, and in His payment for sin is the only way we can meet the holy and perfect standards of a holy and perfect God. By nature, by choice, we've all fallen short of God's perfect standards, and we are guilty, every one of us. And yet, in Christ, we are declared righteous and innocent in God's eyes anyway. How? Through faith. Through faith. So God has revealed this standard of righteousness and the meaning and the means of attaining to it in Jesus. And Paul says he's revealed it from faith for faith. From faith for faith. Now this is a this is a phrase that uh, a lot of biblical scholars have uh, worked through, and it's it's found it difficult to interpret. And so. The last thing I'm going to do is stand up here and tell you this is exactly what it means. But it could mean a couple of things. First of all, that Paul meant that the righteousness of God comes from faith, like it's the result of our faith, and that the righteousness of God was given to us for faith, right? So that we could have that. It's one understanding. Some take it to mean that we become righteousness, or we become righteous by or through faith. And yet there are deeper levels of faith that God brings us to in our walk with Him. Others think it means that faith kind of gets passed on from like one person to the next. From faith for faith. That we pass it on one to another. But what's clear is the necessity of faith. The necessity of faith. And then he goes on to say, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's the last phrase of this section. This is a pretty important statement. And what's interesting is that he's actually quoting the Old Testament. Now remember, the Old Testament has all these laws in it, right? There are so many rules and regulations and rituals that were required of God's people. They constantly failed to keep them, even when they tried really hard, which, quite honestly, they often didn't. And Paul's suggesting that even in this Old Testament system filled with rules and regulations and laws to keep, the key thing was faith. It was faith. Without faith, there was no hope of possessing any kind of righteousness. Without faith, there was no hope of being seen as right with God. The only way to be approved by God and deemed acceptable to Him, to meet the standard of righteousness and be declared right in God's eyes, is through faith. It was true before the time of Christ, and it's true after. Faith is the key. And Paul says, look, the righteous will live by faith. And and when he says that they will live, two aspects to that. First, the righteous will live by faith refers to the way we walk in this world. Right, The way in which we walk in this world, we are going to live and walk by faith day to day. In the Old Testament passage, this comes from The living by faith was being contrasted with the person who lived wickedly and sinfully. So our lives are meant to be like this evidence of genuine faith. We live or walk by faith. But second, the righteous will live by faith in the sense of 
the life to come. The righteous will live forever and eternally because of faith. Both aspects are true. The righteous will live by faith in the here and now. And because of that faith, the righteous will live eternally forever as well. All right, so we've worked through the key ideas, all the thoughts here that Paul brings out kind of in this thesis statement. It's a bit loaded. Um, Let's try to bring it all together for this morning. Two important things that I think Paul is asserting here. First of all, that salvation comes through righteousness. We have to possess righteousness, specifically the righteousness of God, if we want to have eternal life. And second, righteousness comes through faith. We have to have faith in the good news of Jesus if we want that righteousness. Nothing else will accomplish it. And so here's kind of that key idea. Salvation comes through righteousness, and righteousness comes through faith. Salvation, eternal life, comes through righteousness. Through, that's how we attain the righteousness of God. And that righteousness comes through faith, specifically faith in Jesus. I think that's the foundation. That's pretty clearly the foundation that Paul is trying to lay. Righteousness of God is something we can have. But it's only possible through faith. And that faith is only possible because of Jesus who has been revealed to us by God himself. He's the standard for righteousness. He's the means of attaining it. And and that's important because not just any religious perspective is going to get someone salvation. It's not just a, a general faith in a God or gods or something like that. It's very specific. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus alone. And over the next couple of chapters, Paul's going to show that beliefs like paganism and moralism and self-effort and our religious identity, those are things that are not going to cut it. All of these ideas of how to come to salvation are flawed and wrong, he says. Because their idea of what righteousness is, it falls way short of God's standard of righteousness. And even though they contain an element of faith within them, that faith is placed in the wrong things. It can't accomplish making us right with God. Only faith in Jesus, the good news of the Gospel, can do that. So salvation comes through righteousness. Righteousness comes through faith. This morning we're going to take communion together just felt like it was really an appropriate time to do that in light of what this message is all about. It's almost like the whole message is a lead-up to recognizing just what Jesus has done for us and the salvation that he has offered us, the righteousness that we can attain and have that's credited to us because of what Jesus did on the cross. And what he did, <laughs> when we put our faith and trust in him, that makes us right with God. And yet I, I think um, one of the things that, that kind of came to mind is uh, although we are credited with the righteousness of God by Jesus because of what He's done when we put our faith and trust in Him, that doesn't mean we didn't do the terrible, awful things, the shortcomings, and the, the way we've fallen. We're, we're still guilty. Like every one of us is guilty. Guilty. 
And yet we're declared righteous and innocent in God's eyes anyway. Why? Because of our faith in Him. Again, He's the standard for righteousness, but He's also the means of attaining it. He's made a way for us to be declared right in the eyes of God, even though we are totally guilty. And that's why the gospel is such good news. Right? So as we come to communion this morning, we're just going to play some music in the background. We're going to give you a few minutes to kind of come up and take uh, the bread and juice, and you can take that back to your seat, and we'll take it all together. It's just an invitation this morning to remember the incredible thing that Jesus has done for us on the cross. And as usual, as always, everyone is invited to participate in communion. It's not the act of taking communion that makes us right with God. It's Jesus who makes us right with God, right? Putting our faith and our trust in Him, the one who gave His life for us on the cross, He's the one that makes us right with God. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Portico Church in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. You can find out more about our church at porticocommunity.com.